Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the first episode of Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill. Some of you may know me, some of you may not. Um, I'll try and explain who I am. I've been singing in a band called Primordial for nearly 30 years out of Dublin, Ireland, along with a few other projects like April Men and Dread Sovereign. I work for Metal Blade Records, have a long history in the music industry, almost 20, 25 years of touring, traveling the world, being an idiot across several different continents. So I know that I'm sort of late to the podcast game. I'm quite well aware of that, that I'm a analog man living in a digital world. But now with the um, current state of the world and the COVID virus and the quarantine, I thought that maybe I might be able to poke my grey matter to see what stories of inane stupidity from my past I can uh, regale you with, but also maybe an attempt to save my sanity. So let's do it. After a post I made on social media about how the future terrain, the landscape of the live music industry might look for musicians, which was the prompting for me to consider doing a podcast and try and explain some of these things. I mean, realistically, musicians have been traveling T-shirt salesmen for the last couple of years, and effectively, it's been enforced on them by the lack of revenue streams from most other platforms. The shortfall from streaming would not even make up 1% of the money that I, along with many other musicians, have lost from 
the collapse of touring and festivals and all this kind of stuff. I'm not going to use the podcast as a, a whinging platform. That's not really my motivation, as I know that will be get pretty tiring to listen to pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, we should say a few things about this. Uh, I did make a post saying to people that if they were going to buy merch to make sure they did it from bands themselves, directly from their pages. Be aware that if you buy a T-shirt from Spotify, this is a third-party kickback that doesn't really go to the bands. At some stage, I'll get into the whole Spotify discussion. But the reality is that um, the virus and what it represents is going to hit small festivals, it's going to hit local agents, it's going to hit bars, it's going to hit venues. It's going to hit every machine in the cog, every part of this industry. And the reality is that every other knock-on effect on top of that is going to increase as well, whether this is flights, this is hotel prices, this is gas, this is petrol prices, van hire, commissions on merchandise and ticket pricing. I'm perfectly well aware that um, the week or so of goodwill that was uh, enacted and appreciated by musicians from the general public when, you know, the Bandcamp app crashed, among other things. And people have been very supportive in buying merchandise, that kind of thing. But the reality is, as we move into the next couple of months with the virus, many, many people are going to become unemployed and lose their jobs. So this initial act of goodwill, I think, is going to be replaced with a very stark reality of millions of people are potentially going to be unemployed. So maybe consider that the small festival you really enjoyed last summer could be gone potentially. So if you've really enjoyed, I don't know, whatever boutique festivals in your local area, maybe have a look up and see if they've got any shirts from the year you went. Buy one for the price of a cup of coffee, maybe make a Patreon donation, that kind of thing. It might very well be the thing that saves all of these small businesses that are about to go to the wall. So with that in mind, I'm not going to harp on about this and make this a, a platform for me to whinge about being a musician because the reality is that I'm in a far greater position realistically than many others in the sense that if we're going to be crass about it, history is currency. And having 20, 30 years of history behind you, it does mean something in the music age now. To be a musician starting off right at the beginning now would be a daunting prospect because the reality is I think that most modern platforms are designed for a brand, a person. They aren't designed for a band, for a rock band, for a bunch of guys or girls with guitars. The reality is if I was to open a TikTok account, sing along poorly, well, some of you may say that already, sing along poorly to some uh, 80s TV shows and then smush my face in a rather large cake that I might have a more profitable revenue stream. It's not come to that yet, although I don't rule it out. TikTok, maybe you are my future. So anyone who's had the misfortune of listening to me at 4am in a hotel room across whatever continent, whatever country, waffle, berate, um, cajole, 
maybe rolling their eyes at the prospect of me doing a podcast. Uh, and you, you may be right. Um, I may also be wondering why I didn't do this years ago, um, but I get it, late to the party, the Irish entrance. Um, no, hang on, that's the Irish goodbye, right? Either way, it's arriving late, half jarred. That's a proper Irish entrance. Jarred is pissed, is drunk, for those of you who don't understand my Irish vernacular. I'm not going to try and get myself into too much trouble or offend too many people this time. Uh, although um, I do promise that will happen uh, eventually. I can't, I can't deny that. Um, or you've probably switched off already, which I also understand. So the point of this will be that um, I'm going to try and go back over, as I said, the grey matter and find some crazy memories from the last couple of decades of touring, some really strange situations I've found myself in everywhere from Russia to Chile to Central America to the Midlands of America. I've kind of more or less been everywhere. And then you, you pour in the usual social lubricants into this idiocy and you could see that I might have some good stories. So I'm going to hoping, kind of hoping to... Um, uncover a couple of them, tell you a few of those. Once we're allowed out of quarantine, then maybe I'm going to be able to get a few friends of mine who've also done stupid things on other continents and uh, irritate them by asking them to regale us, as I said, with tales of those very things. Um, there'll be a little bit of politics, not much. I'm going to try and keep that on the long finger. I get the impression with what's to come, this is more or less the last thing anybody wants to hear right now. And to be honest, I'm not really in the humor for talking about that. The idea might be to um, maybe pick a few unusual historical, cultural people, happenings, and take a look at them. Again, this may be the thing that keeps me sane. I hope it keeps you interested enough to listen to it. Um, but like I said, rock music is in a precarious place. What it represents, as I said, and an, an analog, an analog outlet in a digital world, or something along those lines. Live music is really going to suffer in the in the aftermath of this. I mean, you know, if you think you support live music and go to see Bruce Springsteen once a year, I'm not really talking to you. But the small bars and small local agents are going to go to the wall. You know, the problem rock music essentially has is that realistically, now most platforms are about brand marketing. They're about one face. In the age of Instagram, it's about reach and influence. Too many faces seems to be almost too confusing. And as uh, the drummer of the Black Keys, who I must admit I've never heard, said on the Joe Rogan show, the problem is that record labels very often are kowtowing to the clickbait numbers, which are produced by 11-year-olds. I mean, this is a, another reason why an awful lot of pop music sounds like it was made by children for children, because children very often are the people who are driving these hundred million algorithms. So if we consider rock as an anachronism, I mean, realistically, when is the last time there was a big rock band? If we consider rock as something of an anachronism, then it's hardly surprising that uh, it has no place in mainstream culture anymore. However... In the wake of the virus, once we see, realistically, in my opinion, we are a year away from 
a vaccination and that needs will need to be upscaled massively to hundreds of millions of people. And if anybody really, you know, is blue sky thinking that authorities are going to let 40,000 people descend on a field in Central Europe to get pissed, rub off each other, whatever that may mean, and party for three days when they remain unvaccinated, I think they have another thing coming, as Mr. Halford might say. This may be how the terrain looks in future. And the depressing reality is that already most musicians are considering how do we maintain another revenue stream, but how do we maintain interest and reach in the band? And already I see bands playing to empty venues, playing online gigs. This may be the depressing reality of not only living and working remotely, but the fact that we may get our entertainment remotely. And that may be watching gigs on via streams. Of course, this is a digital reality again, what a band represents. For electro, hip-hop, drill, vocal, keyboard, digital music, this maybe is something they will embrace wholeheartedly. However, on the side of the fence that I'm sitting, it's going to be really difficult. It has kind of crossed my mind also the fact that um, many people last year were discussing this Chinese social currency movement whereby people were rated based on their social interactions, very much like a Black Mirror episode. I mean, the truth is that I imagine companies who deal in biometric diagnostics are going to, with the at the behest of, um, for example, the Chinese government, and I could see other governments doing this as well, they're going to, I think, perhaps introduce... What they're going to maybe introduce is the fact that if you haven't been vaccinated, you simply aren't going to be able to gather. You're not going to be able to gather in public or inside because if the vaccine is going to take a year listening to virologists and is it epidemiologists? I guess it maybe is. Um, can't believe I said that correctly the first time. What might happen is that, and most people don't really think about this, is that a virus or a vaccine on this scale to upscale it into, you know, for uh, hundreds of millions of people to take is going to take a long time. So within now and that time frame, what we may be looking at is travel bans or bans on people who are not vaccinated from gathering, which of course is going to be the ultimate death knell. Anyway, I said I wouldn't get too political. I mean, I, there is a few other things that I have to address before getting into some stupid old story that I'm going to tell you. Um, I mean, if this really is a bioweapon, as some people are considering, it's really not a very good bioweapon, is it? Considering that it seems to only be fatal for a very small proportion of very elderly people. These are not really <laughs> the main targets, you would imagine, of some aggressive totalitarian uh, state that wishes to uh, do a little bit of empire building or a little bit of subjugating and taking over the populace, considering that it's mainly old people that it's been killing. So the idea that this is some sort of man-made bioweapon just doesn't really make any sense. And especially if you take a little bit of time out to study and to listen to experts talking about viruses, virology, pandemics, contagion, I mean, they're as old as or older than our recorded history. What it just so happens that this virus is particularly contagious. It's and, and you know, we also addressed have to address the fact that 
And many people seem to misunderstand that, uh, this, and that is that the purpose of a virus itself, if we consider it as a living organism, is not to die. So therefore, if it kills its host, it also dies. So in a sense, this is the perfect virus because it is highly, highly contagious. That is the purpose of its life cycle. So, for example, you know, Ebola or SARS, we could say from a viral point of view that they kill their hosts far too quickly. Anyway, right, okay. I just have to uh, consider this because I've been arguing with people right, left and center, if we can say it like that, of the political divide about what this means. Now, for sure, there is a difference between causation and opportunism. No doubt there are bad actors or bad agents or whatever you want to consider them to be who are going to seek to take advantage of this situation. That's opportunism in a political, socio-political, um, geopolitical sense. But causation, this is a very different thing. So what's the, what's the moral of the story? I think it might just be don't eat bats. Anyway, where the fuck am I? Where indeed am I? An analog man in a digital world is what I was saying. A square peg in a round hole. Let's hope these aren't the last transmissions from the bunker. Don't really want to die in the bunker. Who does that remind you of? Anyway. So, these are strange times, my friends. Most definitely strange times. I should mention that I have set up a Patreon account which is patreon.com slash Alan Averill, two capital A's as I remember, A-V-E-R-I-L-L, which is an old Norman name uh, from the 16th, 15th century, means the man who shall come or conquer in April, um, and also the name of my other side project I do with my cousin of the same name, April Men. Anyway, I'm in two minds as to what Patreon represented. I set the account up years ago, actually, before all of this started, and it's just been lying fallow, to be honest with you. Um, I've always been in two minds as to how I felt about what Patreon represented, because as a musician, asking to be paid as opposed to being paid, I think is the very difference as to what Patreon represents. However, we are in a new and uncharted territory. The plan is that I'm going to post up all my columns, all my writing, uh, rehearsals people haven't seen before or heard before, versions of songs that people haven't heard before, any old stuff that may seem interesting going back all of these years. Uh, some songs I've been writing myself, this kind of stuff. Um, I'm finding my way, feeling my way around it morally. I think is a very important thing to say. I do have reservations about what it represents. But then again, maybe, you know, uh, lots of famous writers from the 17th and 18th and 16th century had patrons, without which you probably would have never heard of them. So my intellectual dickhead side of me aligns myself with those people. Yes, I know. So utterly ridiculous. But anyway, it is there. So if you do feel that you want to take a look and contribute something to my 
impending death in the bunker so I can keep myself in beans and whatever else, then go ahead and have a look. Shakespeare had a patron, didn't he? Yeah, I guess he did. Anyway, for the foreseeable future, I won't be on TikTok singing along to Lizzo dressed as a dinosaur. Uh, so let's get moving into some ridiculousness. Maybe something that might entertain and engage you. It is a little bit unnerving, I have to say, despite having played hundreds and hundreds, if not nearly a thousand gigs, I imagine, must be somewhere in the region of seven or eight or nine hundred. I am finding speaking in a room of my own without knowing who the audience is a little bit more unnerving than perhaps I should for somebody who genuinely feels little or no nerves before going on stage. Um, the sign of a true sociopath, perhaps. Uh, I feel, I, it's very rarely I ever, ever feel nerves. It could be ten or 20,000 people. I would feel more nervous singing in a room full of people, um, to be brutally honest with you. So I am finding this a bit odd. And I can understand now why most podcasts have a straight man or a straight woman, somebody for you to at least look at uh, when you're talking. I might have to do a Tom Hanks um, thing on it here and draw, what's that movie? Whatever it's called, the one where he's on the island, uh, and draw a little face on a football or something like this to make it a little bit easier to have something to waffle at. So this is something I'm going to try and do every week. If you have questions for me, you can find me on Facebook, Alan Averill again. You can find me on Instagram at primordial underscore Nemtianga. You can DM me. Um, there's a primordial forum chat group. Ask me questions there. Maybe there's something uh, I can drag out endlessly and create a podcast from my adult memory for. So what I'm going to try and do is tell some story from the last few decades, every week. My memory is not that bad. I mean, I'm looking around a room here with hundreds and hundreds of vinyls in it. And realistically, if you were to stand here and pull out one of them, I could probably tell you the price, the shop, the year, the month that I bought it in. It could be in TTK Records, 1989, £4.50, blah, blah, blah. I'm not quite there where I can remember the day and the date. I do have friends who are like that. So maybe I'm not quite on the spectrum as them or as on the spectrum. But no doubt I'm somewhere on it, you know. Um, I just might not have full-blown AIDS or whatever. Brain AIDS. I think you can live quite a long time for that. Anyway, so what I'm going to do is try and go back to tell a story of the first ever Primordial tour. So to set the scene, Primordial's first demo, we made it in the summer of 1993 for a princely sum of 50 pounds, old Irish punts. And we sold them one by one through the mail, um, photocopying covers, handing out flyers. I used to do a fanzine from 90 to 96, which maybe might be another interesting podcast to take a look at. Uh, and the whole of the underground metal scene from that time, let's say 87 to 93, was just one huge, big, massive people tape trading, I used to write to people in behind the, uh, you know, in former Eastern European, uh, former Iron countries behind the Iron Curtain, Central America, South America, Peru to Russia to, you know, all sorts of places. I mean, the reality is that heavy metal was, the heavy metal underground was the thing that punk always claimed it was from the late 70s 
I mean, uh, you will find that UEFA British Heavy Metal 7 Inches just outnumber Punk 7 Inches from the time to the nth degree. And it more or less stayed the same. This was the... It's a, it's an unsexy uh, theory. I mean, and I no doubt some people will be unimpressed with that. And I might get into that in another podcast. But the fact is that between 87 and 93, you have this huge letter writing scene from th- throughout the world. And we played our part by making our demo in 93. Um, I think we recorded cassette A to cassette B, over a thousand copies of it back in the day. And I think the reason why maybe heavy metal isn't considered in those terms is because in the early 80s, very few of the people in those bands went on to write for Sounds and Melody Maker and said about some form of historical revisionism, you know. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I digress. In 1994, we played a gig with Fifth Dominion, who went on to be Arcane Sun, Decomposed and Corpse with a K from Scotland. Rather underrated band if you ever want to go and check them. In fact, both bands made great debut albums. Uh, They were on Candlelight Records of the time. And the Primordial demo was theoretically lined up to be released by Candlelight Records at the time in the wake of successful EPs by Emperor Enslaved. At least that's what I was told. Now, whether that was entirely realistic, I don't know. Uh, It would have needed a remaster. I think it could have held its own. Regardless, anyway, maybe we missed the EP, classic EP boat by about six or nine months. So what we had done is we recorded at that show a live sound desk tape, and that had been used to gain a contract with Cacophonous Records in 94, who had bands like Balsagoth, Psy, uh, Cradle of Filth at the beginning, that kind of thing. So what I'm going to try and talk about is this utterly outrageous first ever tour that Primordial did back in the day. Uh, I'm trying not leave out too many of the details. And some of it may sound unbelievable looking back. At the time, it was just our reality of living in what I would consider on some level a second world country. Maybe that's unfair. But Ireland Ireland was definitely that in the 80s and the early 90s. My 92, 93 things had slowly began to change. However... Anyway, so let's get into it. So we recorded our debut album in 1994, which is another podcast entirely. Uh, I will have to consider that at a later date. It was remixed in Academy Studios as it didn't quite sound right, blah, 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 and was due to be released in the middle of this tour. So Neil from Cacophonous at the time contacted me and said, okay, so... We're going to do a week of dates with Sai and Balsagoth. Sai were coming from Japan. They were here on holiday and had no instruments. So might as well, might as well play with them for a week. So we booked a show in Dublin um, in, in the old Barnstormers, I guess, which was on Capel Street. This is the way things were back then. It's such a strange and odd unfolding of events. So to set the entire scene is that on that day, one of the Birmingham Six had been released, if I'm not mistaken. Or at the very, maybe, I'd released, been released the week before. One of them was in the front bar when we were playing. The venue was in the back. And we were told in no uncertain terms to turn the drums down or there'd be repercussions. It was turning out to be that kind of day. Poor old Balsagoth had come over in their van 
that morning and had driven down a one-way street right into a Republican march coming the other way um, and had basically been stuck in the middle of the street with hundreds of people marching past the van. They'd been stoned. The van had been little short of attacked. So they never even made the first show. They just got in their van and just went back and uh, got on the ferry and went home, leading to much uh, sort of morbid hilarity as around town were posted, uh, handmade posters of, have you seen these men with swords kind of thing. They did have swords at those st- at that stage. This was the first album, second album, Balsagoth, who we did play with in London um, that year, who were truly a force of nature at that time. Really amazing live band. Anyway, so Psy uh, are in Dublin. It's their first ever gig outside of Japan. Um, and we have this tiny back room hired in Dublin. Uh, we have to, there's no, we have to hire in a PA Build the stage out of pallets. You know, you have to realize it was maybe two, three pounds in. Um, There was no proper bouncers, no security, no, absolutely no, nothing like this. No lights, nothing like this. I mean, we had to put the the PA, the the sound desk on a pool table and things were dodgy back then. So having been told to turn down the drums, Psy show up. And they have uh, a guy called Mike from the Devil's Church in tow. And that this story will unfold with him being one of the main characters in it. So in the end, we have about 120, 130, 140 people maybe show up for this tiny, into this tiny backstage room, this tiny bar in the city center in north, north side of the Liffey, if that means anything to you, if you understand the south and the north side of Dublin. Always one good side, one bad side. So it's pandemonium. It's mayhem. It's just all kicking off. Way too many people. The bar staff are really unhappy. The by now rather drunk Republicans out in the front bar are really unhappy with this noisy proceedings that's going on in the back bar. There are people being thrown out and there are people being thrown out left, right and center who are jumping back in through the toilet window. There is for some reason... Along with Mike from the Devil's Church is a driver who's brought an angle grinder with him who has a metal plate and is just randomly angle grinding while the bands are playing. No one explained why. It was never really explained why to me. Uh, There are pictures of it somewhere I'll have to find and post up. Uh, He then proceeded to, I think, uh, take enough amphetamines to kill a horse for the next week and stay up driving us around. Uh, England for the next few days um, and angle grinding. So Psy, of course, had no instruments with them. They had no guitars. They had no anything. But what they did have is their outfits that they wore at the time. So you've got this tiny, sweaty, stinking backstage bar filled with people. Uh, We're all trying to hold the stage together. And I can see in from the stage, you know, setting up the microphones and all that kind of stuff. I can see down the back, the side guys have their, they're changing. They're changing into their black robes, their makeup, their hoods, all of this kind of thing. And there's, you know, there's no, there's no intro tapes. There's no nothing like this. It's just P 
people milling around everywhere, pints flying, general rumbunctiousness of Ireland in the early 90s with everyone on the lash. And these three polite, well, four actually, one of them had their girlfriend at the time with them. These four very polite Japanese people flung into the middle of this. And what happened next is just, is kind of very hard to describe, but, um, and from nowhere, I see an iron glove on fire making its way to the crowd. Now, you have to remember, Psy, of course, were, to be charitable, a few inches shorter than even the most malnourished Irish metalhead of the time. And I could see this iron glove on fire coming through the crowd, smoking, everything, as uh, Shinoji, Shinichi, I'm not sure, the guitar player, Psy, at the time, had an iron glove. Uh, which he had somehow, I don't, I don't know what he had it dipped in, but it was, it was on fire. And they were making their way to the stage in front of a jaws on the floor, like, what the fuck is going on, Irish crowd? He stands there with this iron glove on fire and Mirai has a, a, a plastic skull with explosives in it, I, I guess, of firecrackers or something. Everyone just stands there almost got everybody's intention, attention and Irish people to shut up for a moment, which is really difficult if they've got a pint in their hand. And the skull failed to explode. And we all just stood there in kind of stupefied silence, wondering what is going on. Guitar player puts the iron glove in a bucket of water. I can't remember where the bucket of water, how and where that came from. They picked up our instruments and proceeded to just go black metal and just launch into Venom black metal. Didn't play their own songs, just launched into Venom, whereupon the entire room just is just upended in chaos. Just people going absolutely mental. No barriers, no nothing. They're on, don't forget they're on maybe two high pallets on the ground. We're holding the speakers in place. We're holding the PA in place. It's absolute mayhem. Pints flying everywhere. People jumping off the pool table onto the people who are jumping around. And this is Sai's first ever gig outside of Japan. And they're in the back room of a Republican bar in Dublin playing with no monitors, no lights. There's a random sweaty dude angle grinding behind them. Irish people are losing their minds. They just play Witching Hour. They play... Just only, I think maybe one Victory of Dakini or something like this or Suicidogenic, one, maybe two of their own songs. Just absolute mayhem. And somehow the gig manages to to happen. You know, people are being flung out. There's there's fighting going on. There's It's very hard to describe the carnage that was taking place when they were playing Witching Hour by Venom. Um, of course, I jumped up, hogged the microphone, I'm pretty sure, or maybe that was another show. But somehow we reached uh, we reached the end of the night. Um, and this is not where the story ends at all. At the time, my parents were supposed to be on holiday. So this is 1995, so I would have been 20, 19 or 20. Um, and we were supposed to be getting the ferry along with the sweaty and fetiman addicts the next morning to go to England and play, I think, in Liverpool or Manchester or something like this. So um, 
we, myself and uh, a very uh, young Dara from Invictus uh, are all on the, you know, we're, we're bringing Sai back to stay in my parents' house, my empty parents' house, as I imagined it was. Um, so trying to maneuver four Japanese, polite Japanese through people through drunk Dublin, one, two, three a.m. to take the night bus. And as anybody who's from the UK and Ireland will know, the night bus is the scene of much carnage. This is this was just like a mobile drunk tank with Irish people fighting on it. Um, so, you know, we're trying to maneuver, sigh through the city, you know, endless comments of there's a nip in the air tonight, boys, etc., etc. So we managed to maneuver, sigh, back to my parents' house in the suburbs um, and try and catch a little bit of sleep before waking up in the middle of, well, I suppose in 7 or 8 a.m. to get the ferry across to England. And inevitably, my parents aren't on holidays. They've come back early. I get woken up by my mother at, um, I guess, 8 or 9 in the morning uh, with a poke and a prod and a... There are four Japanese people asleep in the front room. Explain yourself. Ah, right. So, I have to admit that being an Irish mother, um, she was more upset at the fact that she had nothing in the fridge to cook our erstwhile Japanese guests who were sitting politely, not really knowing how to handle the situation. Only Mirai could speak English at the time. Uh, while my mother fussed and uh, tried to cobble together some sort of breakfast for everybody. In the end, the odd sight of Sai sitting in my front room eating carrot cake was what I remember. Not to mention the fact that for some strange reason there was a train strike that day. So my poor father had to get himself out of bed and drive us all to the ferry terminal. We did manage to make the ferry in a very, 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 very strange and odd atmosphere. The first time Primordial had ever really been on tour. We arrived in Manchester. I think we were 15 people in the back of a tiny van. Oh, no, I think it was Liverpool, actually. 15 people in the back of a tiny van. Hecate enthroned from Wales, if anyone remembers them. Still going, actually. I only met them a couple of years ago. Still going, had a very infamous or famous video that was endlessly shown on MTV back in the day. They took over the driving responsibilities for some of us. Uh, and we um, played in Liverpool, I think, that night to about eight people, half of whom were anathema, who we had played with earlier that year in Ireland and uh, done a variation of the same theme of sleeping in vans and sleeping on people's floors and that kind of thing. It's kind of hard to describe what Dublin was like back then. I mean, the population, you know, had just kept decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And in the late 70s, there was only about two and a half million people living here through waves of migration. This continued into the 80s. And the, as a teenager in the 80s, just about, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that Dublin was a, a roughhouse kind of place in the late 80s. It was only really in about 1992, I think, that the, the, the Ireland that we see now began to 
really emerge, you know. But this gig, this was this was some other place. This was so old school. This was so old Dublin. It's a Dublin that you don't really see very often anymore. These kind of absolute recklessness, this just madcap energy to the city on a Saturday night as it was getting loaded up and then people would just be turfed out of the pubs. There was no boutique nightclubs serving martini mochaccinos or whatever you call them or anything. It was just, it was a different, the past, as they say, is another country, but definitely was a different kind of place and it was very, very easy to get into trouble, that's for sure. So at the time, nothing seemed strange about this this show to us. It's only looking back when I retell the story. I have to admit it is one of my 4 a.m. stories that takes a long time to in, unfold in a typical Irish fashion as twists and turns and heads off in different directions and maybe doesn't really have a complete conclusion. Other than to say we ended up a week later uh, playing London for the first time in Mike from the Devil's Church's uh, club and afterwards someone fired a gun into the ceiling where we were staying. The whole time we were just driven around by, and I kid you not, a man in dungarees um, who had a a couple actually. The man in the dungarees with a cowboy hat um, had an angle grinder and a metal plate and every gig would just randomly pull this out to angle grind while either Primordial or Psy played. And a girlfriend who wore a red velvet dress with a picture of the gladiator. Uh, which gladiator is it? The bald guy with the sort of mullety hair. I can't remember who that is. A picture of him stapled onto the front of her dress. I think with that memory, I'm going to leave it now. So there you go. More Stories of stupidity, idiocy, uh, me getting into trouble, I would imagine some sex, drugs and rock and roll, but mainly just inane stupidity and uh, exuberance of youthful naivety. So hope you enjoyed this first episode. Uh, like I said, if you want to go over to Patreon, have a look. I'm going to start throwing up my writing. This, that, the other. So there you go. Like I said, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's primordial, P-R-I-M-O-R-D-I-A-L, underscore, or is it under slash, whatever, Nemthianga, N-E-M-T-H-E-A-N-G-A, which means evil tongue in Old Irish, by the way. People sometimes ask me that. Nem is evil or dark, or whatever you want to say, evil tongue, well, yeah, I guess worm tongue. Maybe we'll look into the etymology of that some other time. Etymology is language, right? Entomology is insects. I'll figure it out. Anyway, hope you enjoyed it, and you can survive your quarantine wherever you are. This may be the future of things. Living remotely. Stay strong out there, wherever you are. In the years of the primal form, the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and horse, and man was the lord of the earth. He made him an oil.